0: Everyone reads Revelation with an eye toward the date of Christ's return. And let's face it, clickbait eschatology is a pretty big seller. But what's often missing in the marketplace is an exploration that it provides for God's character. And if we're not careful, we can study Revelation and miss the central theme. That's Jesus. Well, coming up, we'll help you avoid misunderstanding and misusing Revelation. Revelation. Plus, you'll find an update on the conflict in the Middle East. That's all ahead on The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host. He's an Old Testament scholar, former pastor, and a respected Middle East expert. I'm John Geiger, and you know, Israel, of course, has been on all of our minds these past months. Many of us have been struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. Right, Charlie? That's right, John. And that's why as this year is drawing to a close, our friends
1: at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture, they can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you would like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's
0: lifeinmessiah.org. Well, Israel's war against Hamas is now into its seventh week. Information is finally coming to light, revealing how Hamas— was able to launch such a deadly attack and catch Israel so completely off guard. What has Israel learned so far, and what are they releasing to the public? Yeah, John, you know, like so many surprise
1: attacks in the past, hindsight is always 2020. Uh, looking back, Israel's starting to piece together how the terrorists prepared for the invasion prior to the actual attack. Hamas spent two years planning the attack, all the while sending out false signals suggesting they weren't looking for a fight they constructed a mock Israeli settlement in Gaza where they taught their fighters tactics for storming the towns. They kept the actual attack plans a closely guarded secret known only to a select few. The fighters themselves were only told about the mission two hours before the attack and only the squad leaders knew the specific targets before each of those groups set out. The attack itself was well planned. They gathered intelligence on the towns, From the Palestinians, Israel allowed in from Gaza to work. The attack coincided with the end of the Sukkot holiday when many soldiers were away from their posts and back home on leave. The attack began with a barrage of over 2,200 rockets fired against Israel. Soldiers on motorized hang gliders then flew into Israel to secure the perimeter while elite fighters stormed the border wall and used explosives and bulldozers to punch through at multiple points. A commando unit attacked the Army's southern headquarters and jammed communications to prevent personnel from sounding the alarm, and then the groups of terrorists rushed to pre-assigned communities to capture and kill as many people as possible. Israel had placed too much faith in electronic surveillance, which caused them to reduce the number of soldiers on duty. The last time Israel was so completely fooled, John, was 50 years ago at the start of the 1973 Yom Kippur War and the results
0: were about as catastrophic. Well, a recent survey here at home suggests more than 70% of U.S. Jewish people feel less safe now than before the start of the war. What's causing their angst, and what can be done to help alleviate it?
1: Yeah, sadly, much of it's being caused by the rise in anti-Semitism here in the U.S. as a result of the conflict and as a result of the biased reporting on the part of the media. The war has become a flashpoint on U.S. college and university campuses as students stage mass protests against Israel. The phrase that they're shouting, from the river to the sea, well, that message, by the way, is talking about the establishment of a single state of Palestine that would extend from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, in effect, wiping out the state of Israel. Jewish students are being intimidated on campuses, with some receiving anonymous death threats. The same thing's happening in the cities of our country, uh, with people being assaulted, with synagogues being defaced. Incidents of anti-Semitism rose nearly 400% since the start of the war. And all of this is what's worrying both U.S. Jews and Jews living in Europe. So what can someone listening right now do to help? I'd like to offer two suggestions. First, contact your elected representatives, and I mean local and state and national, You can do it by email, by letter, or by phone call, but let them know there's no place for anti-Semitism in our country. Encourage them to take a public stand against anti-Semitism and to make sure our country is doing everything it can to protect all our Jewish citizens. And then second, watch in your community for rallies or gatherings in support of Israel and take the time, go and show your support. You know, Genesis 12:3 is still operative. God said, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. So do what you can to bless Israel and the Jewish
0: people and then be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, bringing us an update on the conflict in the Middle East and much more. Well, the horrifying details of Hamas's brutality during that initial attack sounds kind of like scenes from the Bible coming to life. Help us understand these actions from a biblical context. Yeah, John, you know, I found myself
1: trying to figure out why is it I I was so disturbed by the events as they they reported what came out. And I found myself focusing on some of the Old Testament imagery that Frankly, we try not to think about in our so-called modern era, but it's imagery that helps us explain and understand Hamas's actions. Some examples. In Judges 5, Deborah sings a song following her and Barak's victory over the forces of Sisera. In verses 28 to 30, she describes the mother of Sisera watching out the window for her son to come home having uh, attacked the uh, Jewish people. And the mother wonders why it's taking so long for him to return. And her attendants try to comfort her. They tell her, well, they're just dividing the spoil. And then it says, one or two maidens for every warrior, plus some other loot they can bring home. Plunder and systematic rape were just par for the course for those invaders. And that pretty much pictures what Hamas was doing. Another example uh, comes from the criticism being leveled against Israel. You know, they were telling the people in Gaza City to flee south to get out of the fighting. Well, I couldn't help but think of Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah was bitterly criticized for giving the same advice to the people of Jerusalem in his day. In Jeremiah 21, he's told to tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes out and surrenders will live. He'll escape with his life. That call to flee was for the benefit of the people. And that's what Israel's been trying to do as well and also being criticized for it. And then I thought about the taking of hostages. Naaman the Syrian, the commander uh, who had leprosy, well, he had a servant girl who told him about Elisha. But 2 Kings 5.2 tells us how she ended up in Syria. Invaders had attacked Israel and taken away captive this young girl. So rape and looting and the capture of innocent civilians And on the opposite end, encouraging civilians trapped in the war zone to escape. Well, those were the realities in Old Testament times. And we're seeing those
0: same scenes being replayed again today. Boy, not what is merely just old, but ancient is new, right, Charlie? Exactly right. Yeah. Well, Israel's education minister has announced plans for an eventual Yad Vashem-like October 7th memorial. What does he have in mind and how soon might that be completed?
1: Well, the minister is proposing a center that would preserve everything having to do with Hamas's attack, as well as the stories of heroes who protected Israel that day. He wants the center to be staffed by professionals with the goal of educating future generations, much like Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum, does today. He wants the center to have a museum, a memorial, and an information center, and a website. It's a great idea, though, when it might happen. Well, that's anyone's guess. Right now, Israel is still fighting the war, and they're also going to be struggling financially once the war's over to rebuild the areas impacted and revive their economy. Yad Vashem wasn't established until five years after the founding of the state of Israel. so It might not take as long to establish this memorial, though it will certainly take some time to plan where it ought to be located and how it ought to be designed and how it ought to operate. And in many ways, it might be good to allow just a little time for healing to take place. But I do look for Israel to prepare something in the
0: not-too-distant future to keep the victims and the heroes from being forgotten. Charlie, what are we to make of the softening media coverage here? Their increasing unwillingness to call a spade a spade and to put quote marks around things that are factually true as far as Hamas's weaponry tactics, skullduggery, if you will. It just seems like uh, the media coverage is just continuing
1: to soften. Well, to the extent that we no longer have morals, no longer have absolute rights and wrongs, uh, you find the media saying, "Well, depending on which side you're on, you know, what's, who's to say what's right and what's wrong?" And sadly, that's the outcome of the leaving the Bible and the biblical standards
0: of uh, of what's right, and uh, it just keeps playing out. Yeah. Well, everybody reads Revelation with an eye toward the date of Christ's return. But if we're not careful, we're going to miss its central theme, Jesus. We're going to talk about misunderstanding and misusing Revelation on our next segment here on The Land and the Book. But thanks for staying with us and for sharing us with your friends. Revelation, the Bible's last book. Ever think about the fact that this is God's final word to mankind? That it offers a breathtaking revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ? Though this letter describes depravity, and devils, and destruction, it also provides an incredible portrait of our Almighty God, not to mention ultimate hope. Well, coming up, a fascinating look at God's great finale. You're listening to The Land and the Book, and for that, we say thank you. Hey, if we've never met, I'm John Geiger. Could we switch gears for just a quick second here and talk about sharing Jesus with a Jewish friend? What do I mean by that? You've probably heard it said before, one opposition to becoming a Christian is the sense that a Jewish person has that they're going to lose their Jewish identity somehow. You know, I was born a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. I could never become a Gentile Christian. What's the answer to
2: that? West Tabor is with life in Messiah. Well, preserving Jewish identity is a high value among Jewish people. For centuries, both the synagogue and the church agreed that belief in Jesus meant losing one's Jewish identity. Jewish identity is rooted in biology. A physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can rightfully claim to be Jewish. So nobody loses their ethnicity upon trusting Yeshua. We do gain new citizenship in God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. But Messianic Jews often say believing in Yeshua— The one who perfectly fulfills God's promises to Israel as Messiah and Redeemer makes me feel all the more Jewish.
0: So then our focus might not be on converting to Christianity so much as trusting in the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua.
2: Exactly. So we're emphasizing relationship with the God of Israel, not affiliation with a religion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. We can only come to God through the merits of His beloved Son, Yeshua thoughts there from Wes Tabor, who's with Life
0: in a Messiah. Best-selling author Jeff Kinley empowers people with God's truth. He's the author of 40 books and previously served in pastoral ministry for three decades. Jeff has been featured on Fox and Friends, The Glenn Beck Show, The Ben Shapiro Show, and hundreds of national radio and television programs. His Vintage Truth podcast is heard in more than 100 countries worldwide And he's also the co-host of the Prophecy Pros podcast, which, get this, just surpassed one million downloads. Jeff and his wife have three grown sons, live in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we welcome him back to the land of the book. Good to connect, Jeff.
3: Thanks, John. Good to be with you again.
0: You write that today's church has become complacent, lukewarm. Revelation was written to arouse a slumbering bride so that she could prepare for the imminent return of the bridegroom. What's the way out of our complacency? And and why does that route seem to take us right through Revelation?
3: Yeah, well, it's very interesting. You think about Revelation was written in 95, around 95 AD, and this is about two generations now past the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And during that time, of course, Acts chapter 2 happened. The church was birthed, and churches in Asia Minor were uh, growing. But over time, these second- and third-generation Christians began to be lethargic. They began to fall away. And God had one last book to write in his written Revelation, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so he wrote it really as a way to say, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you before I come back. So it really combines, John, a beautiful, really combination of not only intel about the end times, but also about God himself.
0: One common source of confusion about Revelation is the use of violent and apocalyptic imagery. We think of the plagues and judgments described in the text, and some readers kind of struggle, uh, Jeff, to reconcile this imagery with the idea of a loving and merciful God. Help us out here.
3: Yeah, I think sometimes we tend to think of God as sort of a one-dimensional being. We think He's just loving, and compassionate, and gracious, which, of course, He is. Uh, but as you survey the whole of Scripture, you see that God is also righteous. He's also uh, holy. Uh, he's also a God of justice and he does have an end to his patience. And so uh, this particular period of Revelation really tells us about a time when God will be unleashing his wrath on unbelieving mankind on planet Earth uh, during a time we call the tribulation period. Uh, Concurrently with that, though, there's also a lot of grace that's poured out as well. So uh, it is sort of a a wake-up call, I think, for us to see who our God is. In fact, in the very first chapter of Revelation, Jesus portrays himself as one who has eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze and just speaks of his coming in judgment. And so he's both loving, gracious, but also righteous and holy.
0: God's great finale. That's our focus for this segment on the land and the book. Our guest is prophecy expert Jeff Kinley, and I'm John Gager. Another area of confusion is the depiction of God as a vengeful judge, particularly in the context of the final judgment. I think some people struggle with the idea that God would condemn people to eternal punishment. You know, there's, there's a lot of pushback against hell being, you know, a lake of fire that burns forever, though Scripture declares it to be so. Uh, they find this portrayal of God to be inconsistent with the teachings of love and forgiveness, found elsewhere in the Bible. Now, we've touched on some of this, but how should people view Revelation in light of all this?
3: Well, if you think about it, I mean, when you think about God's character, we talk about God being a vengeful or a wrathful God— Really, that's nowhere more accurately portrayed than at the cross of Christ, because when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father unleashed His holy wrath on the Son and abandoned Him there and also had Him punished for the sins of mankind. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we have the beauty of love, grace, forgiveness, holiness, wrath, and justice all kind of coming to this intersection uh, at the cross at Calvary. And so I would say to people, you know, you really do want God to be a just God. You want him to be a God that ultimately punishes sin, because I think John there's within all people a desire for evil just to go away and for there not to be any more injustice, any more murder, uh, any more rape, any any more uh, sex trafficking, all these evils that one day God promises he will actually do away with, but he can't do that unless he is a God of vengeance and of wrath. And so that's the beauty of God is that he deals with evil, but at the same time, uh, He gives us His grace and mercy.
0: Jeff Kindley is the co-host of the Prophecy Prose podcast, which just surpassed one million downloads. He's written 40 books, including God's Great Finale. Jeff, aren't there different beliefs regarding the timing of the rapture and tribulation? Can you explain the differences in the pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-tribulation viewpoints and what each can take away from Revelation despite those key differences in interpretation.
3: Absolutely. The, the word tribulation refers to a seven-year period of time that we believe is going to take place at the end of time. Uh, that's the place where God is pouring out His wrath. When we talk about the rapture, the rapture is the rescue of the bride of Christ up to God prior to him pouring out his wrath. So the pre-trib rapture view says that believers are rescued before God begins those sealed judgments in Revelation chapter 6, much in the same way that the angels rescued Lot before God's wrath came down. Uh, so the pattern in Scripture is sort of God is, rescues his, his own before he pours out his wrath, but he does not necessarily save us from man's wrath. Uh, so the pre-trib view says it happens before the mid-trib view, says in the middle of that period of time, that three and a half years in, about when Antichrist enacts the mark of the beast, that right then is where the church is raptured. They see God's wrath beginning there. And then the post-trib view says that the rapture occurs at the very end of the tribulation period, that seven-year time, where Jesus returns to snatch his bride up, take her to heaven. They turn right back around and come straight back down uh, to earth. Uh, at the second coming of Christ at Armageddon. So three very distinct views. Obviously, only one view can be right, and this is an issue that we certainly don't want to divide the body of Christ over. However, if it's important enough to study, and if it means that we get delivered from God's wrath, it certainly is something that every believer uh, should investigate.
0: Okay, you have uh, opened up that uh, that can of worms there, so to speak. How can Christians (laughs) interact in a Christ-like way with those who share different beliefs about the rapture and tribulation than we do,
3: I think number one, realizing that it's not a salvific issue. In other words, it doesn't determine a one one's eternal destiny. And so, knowing, hey, you know, with a, with a friend that may have a mid trib view, that look, we're going to be in heaven together, regardless of your view or of my view on on the end times. Uh, so that should not prevent us from having great fellowship uh, together. And also, just there are things about the end times that all three of those views agree on, which is Jesus will come back at his second coming and then set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. So there are many points of agreement that we have. It's just on the timing of the rapture uh, that we disagree.
0: What about the role of the Antichrist in Revelation, Jeff?
3: Well, it's huge, actually. In fact, the Antichrist is the second most mentioned figure in the end times other than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, there's some hundred passages of Scripture that mention Antichrist uh, in the Bible. So he's a he's a prime figure. He's a key character uh, in the end times uh, scenario. And what happens is he really dovetails into Satan's desire to establish a global governance system in the world and for him to be ruling through that. And that, in essence, is Satan's way of placing his man of sin in a place where he can be worshipped, i.e. worship Satan as well, And so it's just Satan's long-held desire to be worshiped by the world and to rule over the world, and he'll do that through the man Antichrist.
0: Questions about revelation. We seem to have no end to them, which is why it's great to have an expert joining us today on The Land and the Book. He's best-selling author Jeff Kinley. I'm John Geiger. Hey, will there be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ mentioned in the book?
3: Yeah, I believe there will be. In fact, Revelation chapter 20 mentions the number 1,000 six times in seven verses. And, of course, if God says something once, we should uh, pay attention to it. But when he repeats it six times in such a a small amount of time, uh, then we should definitely uh, pay attention to that number. So, yeah, I think it's a literal seven-year kingdom. And uh, and you know, the kingdom is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. We don't know how long it is until we get to Revelation chapter 20. So uh, based on just a normal, plain interpretation of Revelation 20, I take it to be a literal thousand years.
0: What about the mark of the beast with the advancement of technology and chips being uh, you know, implanted in people? There's all kinds of wild things going around. What do we need to know from Revelation?
3: Well, I think two things. As you know, we've talked about the mark of the beast for for many years, and people have wondered how in the world will it happen. Uh, there are really two areas that right now make the mark of the beast more feasible than at any other time in human history. The first is technology. Uh, the idea that you can scan someone's hand or something on someone's hand was unprecedented even twenty thirty years ago. But now, with things like Amazon One, uh, where they're scanning the uh, the palm print of your hand and reading the vein structure behind it. Uh, there's a system, technologically speaking, in place now that can transact that economic transaction just through reading your palm. Uh, so I don't think Amazon wants the mark of the beast, but there is the technology there. But the second aspect of that, John, is the idea of a digital economy. In other words, in order for uh, Revelation 13, 16 through 18, which says that no man can buy or sell without the mark of the beast, meaning... You can't pay your mortgage, you can't pay online, you can't buy a stick of cum, you can't buy food. Without this mark, digitally speaking, it has to be a digital economy. And so there has to be uh, some sort of way to transact online uh, without actually exchanging paper or cards or anything like that. And of course, there are over 114 countries in the world right now that are on their way to implementing a digital economy, uh, including the United States of America. So the scary thing about that is, is that once that happens, Every transaction becomes traceable, becomes trackable, it becomes programmable and expirable. So in essence, becomes a control issue over everyone's money down to the penny. And Antichrist will have to have that in order to have that mark of the beast.
0: How close do you think we are to that in the US?
3: <laughs> well, the Fed now rolled out here this June, and this is kind of the test case for banks to begin to, to transact in, in real time immediately. And, of course, they're selling all the positive aspects of it. And, of course, digital transactions themselves are not evil. We do that every day. In fact, over half of our transactions in America are already done digitally. Uh, The scary part is when the government gets involved and there's a potential for tyranny to have its hand in your pocketbook. And so it's being rolled out right now. It's being tested. Uh, Our current president wants there to be a central digital currency bank. Uh, where all money just flows through the same digital bank, as it were. And so, yeah, we're we're rapidly moving towards that right now.
0: What is the ultimate message of Revelation for Christians today? What would you like our listeners to walk away from this conversation with if it was just one thing?
3: Yeah, I I think it's just simply this. You know, the Old Testament said someone is coming. Uh, The New Testament says someone has come. The Revelation says someone is coming again. Mm -hmm. And I think the message for believers are, Prepare yourself for the return of the bridegroom. Be ready uh, for the wedding and for the wedding feast. And that's what Revelation does. It helps us know God better and know what's going to happen so that we can prepare ourselves.
0: What's one thing we could do to prepare ourselves?
3: Well, Revelation 3.2 says to the church at Sardis, first you have to wake up. And waking up means opening your eyes and seeing the risen Christ. In fact, that's what Revelation chapter 1 does and how the whole book begins, is a vision of who Jesus is right now and what he's done for us. And when John looks at that vision, the Bible says he falls at his feet as a dead man. Uh, It overwhelmed him, and so it really got his attention. So I think the number one thing we need to do as believers is to look at Jesus as described in
0: Revelation chapter 1. Jeff Kinley has written God's Great Finale, a link to his book, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for connecting today, Jeff. Thank you, John. God bless. Charlie's back. He's got some questions. No surprise there, but some of the answers might just be surprising. Bible questions, maybe one of them yours, next on The Land and the Book. Good to have your company today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. This segment, it's about you, your thoughts, your questions about the Bible as you crack open that ultimate book of wisdom and maybe ponder a verse of Scripture that leaves you scratching your head. You can always get your question to us when you email us at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. at moody.edu. Charlie, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. And while some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days.
1: Yeah, John, and our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the church living in the last days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land in the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Redelnik and me, Charlie Dyer. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign
0: up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dig into our questions for the day. Lester starts us off asking, what is a cherubim and what does it look like? By the way, a cherubim or plural for a single is a cherub, multiple are
1: cherubim. And the best description is found in Ezekiel 1 verses 5 to 14. A cherub has the general appearance of a man, it says, but with four faces and four wings. The legs are straight, but with hooves like a calf. Under its wings are the hands of a man. And having described the cherubim, Ezekiel identifies them when they reappear then in chapter 10. And that's when he specifically tells us what they are. A cherubim are part of the angelic order and they appear to be the angels who are closest to God and who guard the presence and His holiness. In fact, according to Ezekiel 28:16, Satan was originally a guardian cherub until he was judged for his sin. Now, the other descriptions we have of cherubim are, are the golden representations of the cherubim that were placed on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant and in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. Uh, these descriptions are less detailed than Ezekiel's, but we're told in Exodus 25:20 20, that they have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, obviously, we don't have any actual pictures of cherubim, though they did appear numerous times in the Bible. Uh, one thing we do know, though,
0: uh, they don't look like those little chubby babies we sometimes call cherubs. All right, here's a question from Alan. He says, I have some questions on John chapter 14. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. I've heard two opinions on the meaning of my father's house. One commentary said it refers to the new Jerusalem, while another said it refers to the entire universe that God created. Could my father's house be the entire created universe, including all the galaxies? I take my father's house in John
1: 14 to refer to the New Jerusalem. And I base it in part on Hebrews chapter 12 in, in, in verses 22 to 24. There, uh, the New Jerusalem is said to be the abode of God and Jesus and angels, the church, the Old Testament saints, and the souls of righteous made perfect. Uh, in, in John 14, Jesus is talking about his father's house. And he also says this is where he will be. You know, he tells the disciples, where I am, there you may be also. The new Jerusalem does come down to earth at the end of the millennium, but it is in existence now, and I take it that that's where the dwelling
0: places are that Jesus is preparing for us. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio is what you're listening to. Questions and Answers, our focus with host Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with this question from Todd. He says, I received a letter from a friend who has come to disbelieve the Bible. He has several objections, including what he claims is academic consensus that the Pentateuch is composed of multiple strands of stories that weren't compiled until the exilic period, and that the early events are historical. He also believes Daniel couldn't have been written until the second century, based on the kind of language used and the prophecies that it makes. I'm not sure how to counter these assertions. Can you help?
1: Well, what your friend has done is throw a bunch of mud against the wall, hoping that some of it will stick. And whether he was taught some of this at university or read it in books, the reality is that those objections have actually been answered quite convincingly. Now, for the sake of time, let me just pick up a few of them. His argument against the Pentateuch, based on an old, now discredited theory, often called the documentary hypothesis, which says the Pentateuch was constructed from four or more different sources, often called J, E, D, and P, and finally stitched together during or after the Babylonian exile. A book called The Documentary Hypothesis and the Composition of the Pentateuch by a Jewish scholar named Umberto Casuto presents a clear and compelling critique of the JEDP theory. Another book was written. It's titled Before Abraham Was by two professors at UC Berkeley and The discovery of two amulets at Ketephenom by Jerusalem also causes a problem. In fact, let me talk about that just a second. These two amulets are from the first temple period, and they contain quotations from Numbers chapter 6, the Aaronic Benediction, which supposedly is part of the P document, which wasn't written until the exile. And yet, here's some amulets found before the exile, quoting something that supposedly hasn't yet been written. Now, the Greek loanwords in Daniel, they're actually musical instruments, And a scholar named Edwin Yamauchi has shown that musical instruments were imported and exported throughout the Middle East long before the time of Daniel. The reality that Daniel identified Belshazzar as ruling in Babylon was actually lost by the second century in the writings of others. But here in the past century or so, documents from Babylon were uncovered showing Daniel was correct. Uh, But the real problem the friend has is the issue of predictive prophecy can God predict the future, including the rise of Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome? And if he can, there's no problem with those countries being named, since that's exactly what God is claiming to do in those passages. Now, the bottom line is that every objection raised by your friend has a solid answer. A good book to recommend is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. You might want to buy a copy to share with him and also get a copy for yourself. It's really good.
0: Mary writes, the church I attend chose a Sunday school curriculum I don't like. For example, the lesson assigned to me to teach was this promise, the Lord will keep you from harm. The key verse, 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, in the Bible story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The point was that God kept them from harm and used 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, to him be the glory forever and ever. But 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song before his execution. Wasn't Paul more concerned about his heart attitude toward the Lord?
1: Uh, your concerns are right on target. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were convinced God would save them from death. He says, the God we serve is able to save us uh, from the blazing furnace, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. However, they did acknowledge that even if he doesn't, we want you to know we will not serve your gods. But the point of the story is uh, they had faith that God could physically deliver them from death. Now, 2 Timothy 4, Paul knows he's soon going to be executed. And he says in 4.6, the time has come for my departure. And though God stood by him during his first defense before Caesar, Paul knew the order for his execution would eventually be given. So in verse 18, he is saying that God will deliver him through death and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. When teaching this, the best approach is to talk through the two stories and have the people note the similarities and differences. You know, both accounts are of believers remaining faithful during times of persecution. But then you can note that the three friends were rescued from death while Paul found deliverance through death. In both cases, God provided deliverance, but that doesn't mean his followers won't experience death or martyrdom. I'm not sure if that's the lesson they're trying to give in the literature, but it's the lesson I see when you compare those two passages.
0: Donna comments, I recently saw a documentary about how we got our Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and I was wondering, were the Dead Sea Scrolls used in translating any of our modern translations, and if so, which ones? Well, I believe most modern translations do use the
1: Dead Sea Scrolls in their attempt to arrive at the most accurate Hebrew text for translation. Now, here's how the 1984 NIV translators explained it. They actually wrote this in their preface to the translation, For the Old Testament, the standard Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, as published in the latest edition to Biblical Hebraica, was used throughout the text. And then they add, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain material bearing on an earlier stage of the Hebrew text. They were consulted, as were, and then they list some other ancient sources as well. I remember from my time in seminary that there were times when the Septuagint translation and the Dead Sea Scrolls seemed to suggest a different reading for a passage other than the traditional Masoretic text. It didn't happen too often, but those are the places where the translators would explore all the different ancient sources to try to determine which seems to match best what the original author wrote. Now, unfortunately, it's difficult to discover those variations in our English translations. And the NIV, though, usually appears a footnote under the text, and it'll say something like, or, and then they'll have an alternate reading in italics. But you don't know if the alternative readings from the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Masoretic text or some other ancient source. To find that, you really need to know how to read the textual apparatus in the Biblical Hebraica. And let me tell you, that's not an easy task. And frankly, it's not worth the effort because most of what we have is very accurate.
0: Todd asks, do we have extra biblical examples of hamartia being used in a concrete sense of missing the mark, as in archery or the like?
1: Yeah, the word hamartia is the word for sin, and initially it had the idea of missing the mark or failing to achieve a standard. It was used in the time of Homer to refer to a warrior who hurled a spear but failed to strike his foe. It was also used to refer to someone who missed his way and of a poet who sought to attain results beyond the limits of his art. By the time the words used in the Septuagint and the New Testament, it took on a more definite religious character, meaning to err or to sin.
0: Well, it's always a great experience to connect with your questions and Charlie's answers. We're not done yet. One more segment, it's Charlie's devotional coming up right here. well like just about anything else in life thanksgiving comes with a list of do's and don'ts yeah there are probably some rules written or unwritten that we should follow as our host dr charlie dyer is about to share in his devotional charlie what do we mean by do's and don'ts Oh, those
1: are the things your parents tell you before you arrive at the grandparents' house. Yeah, make sure you do this and make sure you don't do that.
0: Yeah. All right, we'll get to that devotional after we hear this Holy Land experience. I love these testimonials. Here's another.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Lang. I uh, actually was invited to come with my wife uh, by friends of ours who have been before with Moody, and we turned them down twice, but they prevailed on us And we did agree to go, and it is a life-changing experience. I think the reality of what God is doing in such a small place again and again and again all throughout history just to save us is just the most remarkable
3: thing. And then to see that history unfold in front of us and to hear about it from uh, experts, uh, it is just a remarkable thing. It will change me forever.
0: My name is Joyce Papich and uh, my experience with with the Bible so far has been getting to know the Lord and Him teaching me on the level that I was ready for. And now I can understand things on such a greater level and have so much more communication with Him and reading through the Bible, knowing where He's been, knowing where all these events have happened. I can experience them at a deeper level and get even more out of all the messages that he has for me. I'm just so excited to have a whole new world open up to me. My name is Wayne Studeman and just finishing my second trip to Israel. and I'm absolutely struck by the reality of the presence of God in this small land. In the second visit, uh, there's just, it just becomes so clear that in this small land, uh, God came here first, and he's still very present. And um, we know He's with us everywhere. But if you want to find God in a footprint, uh, come to Israel psalm ninety five is our text today. appropriately enough. Our topic is Thanksgiving. Charlie, what you got for us? Well, thanks, John.
1: I, I remember as a child going to my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. The kids would play outside while the ladies helped prepare the turkey and all the other salads and side dishes. and, There were certain rules of etiquette my parents reminded me of on the way to Grammy and Grampy's and then quietly reminded me of again before we actually sat down to eat. You know, in addition to the standard, no shouting, no reaching out and grabbing for food, and make sure you finish what's on your plate, there were other Thanksgiving-specific rules. Make sure you eat the lima beans in addition to the turkey dressing and mashed potatoes. Only dip your vegetables, not your fingers, in the salt cellar or the salt dish by your plate. And perhaps the most repeated and the hardest to obey? Don't just try to scoop out the maraschino cherries from the ambrosia salad. It was a great meal, in spite of all the rules for the kids. Now, as we grow up, the specific rules change, but the overall concept still remains the same. There are still some do's and don'ts we're expected to observe on Thanksgiving. And God has specific do's and don'ts for His children as they approach Him in Thanksgiving. So, this coming week, as we head into Thanksgiving, Let's go back over the house rules set up by God in Psalm 95 to help us remember how to act. The psalmist begins in the first two verses of that psalm by reminding us why we're gathering together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. The psalmist uses two different words to encourage us to gather before the Lord, whom he describes as the rock of our salvation. Like a solid, immovable peak rising from the valley floor, God is the place we can flee to avoid the devastating floods of life when they sweep by. Now, I like the expression, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Before him is literally his face, picturing God's presence. And the word for thanks is the Hebrew word todah. It's the Jewish expression used today to say thank you to someone. We're to stand before the very presence of God, look to him and say thank you. But why are we to thank God? Well, verse 3 says we're to do so because of who he is. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. God is to be praised and thanked because he is great. When it says God is the great king above all gods, the writer isn't suggesting there are actually other gods. What he's saying is that while other nations might worship idols, the God of Israel was infinitely superior to any supposed rival. But we're not just to be thankful for who God is. We're also to be thankful because of what God has done. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. From the ocean depths to the highest mountain peak, God created and controls all the earth. In verses 6 and 7, the psalmist changes his theme just slightly. We're not just gathering to thank God for who he is and what he's done, We're also gathering to worship him for his care and protection over us. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. There are three main verbs in these verses that point to us humbling ourselves or getting low before God. The word for worship means to bow down, and it's used with the second word for bowing down, along with another word that means to kneel. When we recognize God's greatness and His care for us, it causes us to bow in humble submission. We're like sheep under the protection of the ultimate good and great shepherd. Now, while the first half of this psalm has all the positive instructions, the do's of our thanksgiving, if you will, the remainder of the psalm switches and focuses on the don'ts of our relationship during this thanksgiving season. In the remaining verses, the psalmist focuses on the bad example of Israel in the wilderness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did at Meribah, and as you did that day at Massah in the desert. The psalmist takes his readers back to Exodus 17, when Israel camped at Rephidim. Here's a summary of that chapter. There's no water. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink, and they grumbled against Moses. After this incident, the place was called Massah and Meribah, testing and quarreling. If you truly acknowledge God as being both great and good, and being the shepherd who cares for you, then guard against putting God to the test or arguing with Him and complaining about what you see as the places where He's failed you by not meeting all your demands. In the final three verses, the writer switches perspective. Instead of one human exhorting another human, come, let us, God Himself begins to speak, and His message is one of warning. This is the, don't scoop out the maraschino cherries from the ambrosia part of the psalm. The command is simple and direct. Do not harden your hearts. God explains how this worked itself out in the lives of those in the wilderness. They were a people whose hearts go astray and who have not known my ways. The people drifted off course morally and spiritually because they didn't come to know intimately God's ways. The word God uses for ways is Derek, which is used to describe a roadway or a pathway. They failed to pay close attention to the pathway of righteousness God had laid out for them in his word. As a result, the path they chose for themselves led them astray, and the consequences for the nation were devastating. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. An entire generation died off in the wilderness, never able to enter the place of blessing, promised to them by God. So what's the point of Psalm 95 for us as we get ready to gather this coming Thursday? I can summarize it in three brief commands. Celebrate, submit, or suffer the consequences. The majority of the psalm is a reminder for us to sing, shout joyfully, and come into God's presence with thanksgiving. This is a day to remember who God is and all he has done for us. But with great privilege also comes great responsibility. We're also to willingly submit, bow down, and kneel before our sovereign king to remember he's the good shepherd and we're the sheep of his hand. But if we refuse to submit and instead harden our hearts, complain about his actions, and put him to the test, then we can expect to see the other side of our God. Those who shake their fist at God and refuse to bend the knee will discover that God will eventually abandon them to the consequences of their own choices. Those who deliberately choose to follow their path rather than submitting to his will not enter into his place of rest. So what's the secret to a restful, blessed Thanksgiving? Celebrate, submit, and choose to follow the Lord. Oh yeah, and make sure not to scoop out the maraschino cherries from the ambrosia salad. (laughs) Have a great Thanksgiving.
0: Thank you, Charlie, and I'll watch the cherries. Well, today's program has been a full one. You can hear it all again at thelandandthebook.org. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. On behalf of our hosts, Charlie Dyer and Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.